0: is the most famous in history. Some would say it's Blackbeard, the pirate of the high seas, as he's raiding and looting ships. Others would say it's Robin Hood and his merry men, robbing the rich and giving to the poor and frustrating the sheriff of Nottingham. Or maybe it's Jesse James, the bank robber of the Old West. Some would say it's Barabbas, the one who was released instead of Jesus, who was both a murderer and a thief. They all have their place on the list of thieves. But none of them matches the thief that we're discussing tonight. He's the most famous thief in history. I say that because it seems to be that whenever we have a Bible study with someone and we approach the matter of baptism, they will bring up this thief. They'll say, what about the thief on the cross? Now they have been taught by those that are leading them, that baptism is not required for salvation. And they have been taught that the thief on the cross is an example of someone who was saved without being baptized. And so that's why they bring that matter up, because that's what they have been taught to do. And it is necessary for us as Christians to be able to address that matter. And to be able to answer that matter, that we might keep this thief from stealing their salvation. That they might truly understand what God requires of them. And so tonight, we want to ask three questions and answer them. The first question is, was he saved? The second question is, was he baptized? And the third question is, what does that mean for you and for me? And if we answer those three questions, then I think we will understand what the Bible teaches about the thief on the cross. First of all, was he saved? I think that's the easiest of the three questions to answer. It seems to me that 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 answer is, is very obvious from the text. In Luke chapter 23 and verses 39 through 44, we read about this thief. And we read that as this thief was dying on the cross next to Jesus that he called out to Jesus and he said, "Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom." Simple request. Just a few words that he utters in the direction of Jesus, "Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom." He wants to be remembered. He does not want to be forgotten. That brings up a number of Bible stories for us. It brings up the story of Joseph when Joseph was in Egypt. You remember that Potiphar's wife lied about Joseph, and so Joseph ended up in prison. And while he was in prison, there are two other guys that came to prison, a butler and a baker. And they had a dream, and Joseph was able to interpret their dream. The baker is not going to be restored to his position. He's going to lose his life and the birds are going to come and pluck his flesh from his bones. But the butler, he's going to be restored. And Joseph says to the butler, when you're restored, remember me. But the Bible says that the butler forgot to mention Joseph. It was a number of years when Pharaoh had a dream that he could not interpret. Then this butler remembered Joseph and Joseph comes and tells Pharaoh his dream. This thief is saying to Jesus, don't be like that butler. Don't forget about me when you come into your kingdom. I want you to remember me. Reminds me of Ruth. Reminds me of, of Hannah, rather, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and verse 11. You remember that Hannah desperately wanted a child. And she prayed to God, and she was so passionate in her prayer to God that Eli interpreted it as drunkenness. He's watching her, and he thinks that she's had something to drink because she's pouring out such emotion to God. She's asking God to remember His handmaiden, not to forget His handmaiden, but to grant her request. Her request is... For a child, her request is for a son. She'll name that son Samuel, and she'll give that son to God. God's going to hear and answer her request. He's not going to forget about her. In Psalm 9 and verse 12, the Bible says, the psalmist says, that God remembers the cry of the humble. Those that are humble, God hears and remembers their cry. He did for Hannah, and He is now going to do that for this thief. He said, Lord, remember me, and the Lord is going to remember him. And we know that the Lord remembered him because of the answer that Jesus gives to him. Jesus says, assuredly, today you will be with me in paradise. I like that first word, assuredly. That's blessed assurance, isn't it? Jesus said, Assuredly, sure, I will remember you. You can have confidence in the fact that I'm not going to forget about you and I'm not going to forget what you have asked. You know, some people will listen to us when they're on their way to their kingdom, but when they get into their kingdom, they forget all about us. They get busy with other things. But Jesus isn't going to get busy with other things and forget about this man who's asking Him to remember Him. He's going to do that. He says, assuredly. Now that's a word that means truly. Many times we see verily, verily in the King James Version. Truly, truly. We see this language, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon where Jesus is so plain about what He wants from those who follow Him. He says, for example, in Matthew 5 and verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you that not one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Jesus says, I'm giving you the assurance that not the smallest thing within the law is going to pass unless it's fulfilled. Now, a jot and tittle, that's not language we use. A jot refers to a small letter. In the Hebrew language, it is the eighth letter. It is the Hebrew word yod. Hebrew letter yod. It looks like an apostrophe. That's how small it is. So that's a small letter. In the the Greek language, it is the iota. We, We may say not one iota, right? You ever heard anybody say that? Well, that's referring to this little bitty letter in the Greek language. Just like the little letter in the Hebrew language. Well, a jot is that. A tittle is a little marking on a letter. A little horn, if you will, on a letter. If you think about a capital O versus an O with a little squiggly line at the bottom that makes it a Q, well, that's the difference in those two letters. That little horn. That little line. So what Jesus is saying is the smallest letter or the smallest marking on a letter is not going to pass to the law till everything is fulfilled. That's quite the assurance by Jesus that His Word is going to be preserved. Now, it gets even better than that. Because in Matthew 24 and verse 35, He said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, my Word shall never pass away. That's assurance, right? This Word is going to outlast all of this. It's going to endure. Now, in the context of Matthew 24, He has had this discussion with the disciples. They have taken Him to show Him the temple. They're proud of the temple. The temple isn't even finished yet. It's only been about 40 years in building. It's got another 30 years to go. It's still got a long ways to go. It's already an impressive building, and they're impressed by it, and they want to show it to Jesus. I kind of laugh every time I read that section of Matthew 24. Because it's kind of like me showing a master carpenter my birdhouse. I I want to show you this little birdhouse that I built. Isn't this impressive? Isn't this nice? Because Jesus is the maker, the creator, the carpenter of the world. He made everything we see. And they want to show him a building that was built by man. Jesus, aren't you in prayer? And Jesus says, not one stone will be left on another. That, That blew their minds. Because they equate that with the end of the world. Lord, the only thing that could destroy a building like this would be the end of the world. You see, some of the stones in the temple were 40 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet. They weighed 100 tons. Huge stones. And Jesus said, not one stone left on another. And the disciples are thinking, Lord, we would say it's going to take a nuclear bomb to blow that apart. Well, they were thinking it takes the end of the world to do that. Jesus said, Not one stone left upon another. Now, Burton Kaufman in his commentary explains how that was going to happen. When the Romans burned the temple, the gold melted and ran down into the crevices of the rock. And so, those Roman soldiers, whether it took one of them or a hundred of them, they made sure no two stones were still together. Why? Because they were looking for a pool of gold. They wanted to find every little bit of gold that had melted and ran down into a crevice somewhere. So they were breaking these stones apart just like Jesus said it would happen. But Jesus is giving assurance of His Word being preserved. Well, here He's giving assurance to the thief. You're going to be preserved. You're going to be remembered. You're not going to be forgotten about. Assuredly. Today. Think about that word. Today. Not tomorrow. Not a week from now. A month from now. Not some point in the future. Today. You're going to be with me in paradise. This was an awful day in the life of that thief. An awful day. He was dying on a Roman cross. He was going to suffer and suffer and suffer. In fact, he's still going to be alive when they come to him on the cross. They're going to take a heavy wooden club and they're going to break... Can you imagine somebody coming up and smashing your leg? Breaking both legs to keep from being able to push Uh, He's going to endure that. But at the end of that day... He's going to be. One thief died in sin. One thief died to sin. And then that one on that center cross died for sin. This thief was dying to sin. He was leaving sin behind in order to follow Jesus. Now, have you ever thought about those three crosses on that Roman hill? I think the Jews were making a point. Robber on either side of Jesus? I don't think that's by accident. There's a lot of crimes that can land you on a Roman cross. Why robbers? Why center Jesus between robbers? We always picture that center cross as, as being lifted up a little bit, maybe above the others, but certainly in the middle of those two others, because what the Jews were saying by that is, he, Jesus, was the greatest thief of all. These two on either side, they robbed men of material things, but this one on the center cross, he robbed God of his glory. You see, he's guilty of blasphemy. He's guilty of stealing the glory that belongs only to God. He is the great thief. That's what they were saying about our Lord. They were making an argument against Jesus as he was the greatest thief of these three. But he was the one that was dying for their sin. Jesus said today, you will be with me. And when Jesus said you will be with me, that that takes away any questions I have about whether or not this thief was saved. If you pass through death and after death you're with Jesus, you're okay. You're in the right place. If you see the precious face of Jesus on the other side, you're okay. This this man was going to be with Jesus. Remember, Jesus told His disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Oh, how comforting it is to be with Jesus when we pass through death. This thief was going to be with Jesus when he passed through death. Comforting. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 8 says, We are willing to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We're willing to go through death if it means we get to be with the Lord after death. This thief was going to enjoy that. He was going to be with Jesus. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 17 says that when we are with Jesus, we will ever be with him. We'll be with him forever. So this thief was going to be with Jesus the end of that day and for every day after that he was going to be with Jesus how comforting that is I don't have any question about whether or not this thief was saved I don't know how else you would interpret the words of Jesus than to interpret them as saying this thief was going to be with him in paradise how could he be in a place called paradise and it not be the right place I mean, that's a wonderful place. That's everything as it ought to be. And this thief was going to be there at the end of this day. So the first question is, was he saved? I'm confident that he was. The second question, though, is more difficult. Was he baptized? That's a much harder question to answer. And, And the end answer is, we don't know. That's the end answer that we have to give. We don't know. But I want to at least suggest the possibility that he was. Because those who use the thief as an argument against baptism, they're arguing that they know for a fact that he was not baptized. And I'm going to argue you can't know that for a fact. You can't be sure about that. In fact, I'm going to pile up the evidence to suggest the possibility that he was. Now, I want you to think about this thief. How much do we know about this thief? We have one day of his life recorded, and not even a whole day. We have six hours, one Friday, from this man's life. The six hours that he spent next to Jesus on that cross. That's what we know about this man. Now, you mean to tell me that from six hours, you can tell me everything that this man did up to this point in his life? You just have a small sample that you're going by. You can't tell me what he did the day before this or the day before that or 30 years before this or however long he lived. You can't tell me how, what he did on those days. I can't tell you either. But I'm not arguing that he didn't do something on those days, but those who use him as an example are making that argument. But let's think about this man and what he may have done on a day prior to this day. And I say may have done because there are at least some hints within what he says that give us some understanding of maybe some background that he had lord remember me when you come into your we know at least that many in this region many in this area had been baptized we know that because the gospels recorded matthew 3 4 and 5 says that jerusalem and all judea and the region round about jordan came and were baptized of john that's the very area where this crucifixion is occurring this thief is being put to death in this area where john had done so much of his work could he have been one of those that were baptized by john we know that multitudes were baptized by john luke chapter 3 and verse 7 tells us that multitudes came out and were baptized of him but that just that's just referring to the ones that john baptized john chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2 says jesus baptized more than john did So here's John baptizing multitudes, but Jesus baptized even more than John did. Now Jesus didn't personally do the baptizing, but he was the one that was preaching and his disciples baptized them and they baptized more than John ever did. So when you put together all those that John baptized and all those that Jesus baptized, what is the possibility that maybe this man was one of them? At least the possibility is there. And I want to suggest why I think that possibility is there. What did this man say in his statement? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was expecting Jesus to come into a kingdom. Now why was he expecting that? Well, some might say, well, every Jew expected that. Yeah, most Jews did. Most Jews were expecting a Messianic kingdom. If they knew the Old Testament, they were. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 says, Your king is coming to you. He's coming with, as a just man. He's coming with salvation. He's coming riding upon the colt of an ass. You, you're going to see Him. He's going to come in this way. You know what had occurred in Luke chapter 19? Jesus entering Jerusalem in that very way. Had this man been in that crowd? Had this man seen that? I want you to think. Just think with me and consider the possibility. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, what kind of a crowd was there? Oh, they they, they were everywhere. They were laying garments in front of him. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, they're excited and there's a lot of them. If you're a thief, where do you want to be? If you're a pickpocket, where do you want to be? You want to be where all the people are. And you want to be where all the people are watching and distracted by something so that it's easier for you to take what they have. Could this man have been in the crowd taking advantage of the situation? As they were gathered there shouting for Jesus, had he been there collecting, collecting, collecting? Maybe he had been arrested having done that, and now he is on a cross next to Jesus. What if he had been baptized by Jesus? At least the possibility is there that he was baptized by Jesus. What if this man hanging next to Jesus on the cross at some point in the past had given up his sin only to go back to him? You know, Paul said, let him that stole steal no more. Perhaps hearing Jesus, he had repented of stealing. He had left stealing behind. But at some point after that point, he had gone back to doing that again. And here he is dying next to Jesus in that very sin that he had one time left behind. I don't know that. But I know that there will be people who will die in the sin that they supposed to have years ago left behind. I know that will happen. Maybe this man was one of those. But this man was certainly looking for a kingdom. Well, if he's looking for a kingdom, he's got to be looking for a king. Guess what they have written above the head of Jesus? King of the Jews. Identified him as king. But maybe this man knew Jesus was king for other reasons. I want to suggest how he might have known that. You remember what John was preaching, Matthew 3, 1 and 2? Remember what Jesus was preaching, Matthew four seventeen: Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's interesting, the book of Malachi ends, and we have 400 years of silence. No prophet from God, no utterance for 400 years. All these generations come and go, no word from God. In the Old Testament, a priest brought a sacrifice from the people to God. A prophet brought a message from God to the people. That's the difference in a priest and a prophet. One is going from man to God. The other is going from God to man. And there had been no man coming from God with a message. No prophet. Until John the Baptist appears on the scene. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he's saying, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is in heaven. The first word out of John was repent, repent. 400 years, the first word that God said is repent. He's turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children. He's getting their focus back where it's supposed to be. And He says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. You better repent if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now what is this man talking about on the cross? He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about what John and Jesus have been preaching about, and guess what he's going to do on that cross? He's going to repent because he wants to be a part of that kingdom, because he wants Jesus to remember him when he comes into that kingdom. Where did he get that from? Where did he get that message from? Well, it's what John was preaching, it's what Jesus was preaching. But think about something else about this thief. Think about this thief. And think about the the consciousness he has of his own sins. He has a discussion with the other thief. Because along with the other thief, there has been a period of time where he was mocking Jesus. They both were mocking Jesus. But at some point, this thief changes. At some point, this thief, either watching Jesus, talking to Jesus, looking at Jesus, at some point he said, okay, I'm done with that. I'm not doing that anymore. And so he began to rebuke the other thief. And he said, do you not fear God? We're about to die. We're dying on a Roman cross. They're down here watching us die. Don't you fear God? You're about to meet God. And here you are mocking this man on the cross. Do you want to meet God that way? Do you want to meet God with those words on your lips? He said, I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm done with that. He said, we are receiving the just punishment of our sins. This man had an understanding about what it meant to fear God. He had an understanding of the need to get rid of sin because there's a price tag associated with sin. Proverbs 3 and verse 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes, fear God, and depart from evil. And that's what this man's doing. He's no longer wise in His own eyes. He's no longer mocking this man on the center cross. No, He's done with that. He's repented of that. He's departing from evil. Leaving that behind. He says we deserve what's happening to us. We deserve the judgment that we're receiving. Where did He get that consciousness, that understanding from? You read Luke chapter 3 and read the context. You know what John the Baptist said to the crowds? that were coming out to him and primarily the Jewish leaders that were coming out there, he was saying, you generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the judgment to come? Who told you that judgment is coming, you bunch of snakes? Who told you the world's going to be on fire and now you're slithering over here? You're slithering away from the fire. You've come out here to check on me. Who warned you of that? John said. Well, this man, he's clearly thinking about judgment to come. And he's thinking, I'm receiving my judgment for having been a thief on this earth. But there's a judgment out there that I can change before that judgment. I can't change this one. I'm nailed to a cross. This one is as is, is good as done. But that one hasn't occurred yet. I can be innocent by the time I face that. He's leaving that sin behind. But then he says something about Jesus that's very interesting. He tells the other thief, we deserve our punishment. But this man, he's done nothing. He's done nothing wrong. How does he know that? He only spent six hours with Jesus on the cross. Now granted, those six hours, Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus is showing compassion. He's showing forgiveness to those who don't know about it. Maybe this man was impressed by that but he seems to have had a larger sample size to go by to say this man has done nothing wrong. He's talking about the wrong that they have done, but he says this man, he had not done anything like we've done. You're not guilty of that. Now we know he was right about Jesus. We know that Jesus was without sin, Hebrews 4.15. We know that he was the lamb without spot, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. This man seems to have known the life of Jesus and to be able to say of Jesus that he was innocent. He had done nothing wrong. There were others, of course, who would render that same judgment of Jesus. But this man seems to have known some things. And that knowledge may very well point to the fact that he had heard John or Jesus. He had heard their teaching. He had seen the life of Jesus. Had seen the way Jesus lived. He had seen how Jesus had cared about other people. And that has made an impression on him. Can I say that he was baptized? No, I cannot say that. And be absolutely certain that he was. But I can tell you this. You're, you're, you're climbing uphill to try to prove that he wasn't baptized. Now it, it's the fact that he wasn't baptized on the cross. I don't read any intermission on the cross. I don't read any point at which they took him down. And took him to the Jordan River and baptized him. And then put him back on the cross. I don't read that. I don't think that occurred. So if he was baptized it had to be before this day. But at least the possibility is there that that was the case. Was he saved? Yes. Was he baptized? I don't know. What does that mean for you and for me? Absolutely. You say, really? You preached all of this to say that this doesn't mean anything? Yes, exactly. Now let me explain why I said that. It means absolutely nothing for us because this man lived on one side of the cross and we live on the other side of the cross. This man lived under one testament and we live under a different testament. You know, a testament is of force after the testator is dead. Hebrews 9, 15-17, Jesus is having a conversation with this man. Jesus is the testator of the New Testament. But he isn't in force yet because he isn't dead yet. So this man is living and dying under the Old Testament. This man is living and dying on one side of the cross. We're living on the other side of the cross and we'll die at some point on that side of the cross. So to use this man as our example is is not fair. It's not correct. To bring that man over and require of him what's required of us isn't correct. And we can't go back to his side and do what was required of him. We live on two different sides of the cross. That's important. But I want you to think about something else. I want you to think about the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, the Old Testament was nailed to the cross. And in the shedding of his blood, he purchased the New Testament. Colossians 2.14 Ephesians 2.15 talks about the blotting out of the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us and the taking away of the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That was abolished. That was taken away when Jesus died on the cross. This man was living on that side of the cross. We're living on the other side of the cross. Jesus' blood had not yet been shed to purchase the New Testament. Matthew twenty-six and twenty-eight. This is for this is my blood of the New Testament, which you said, for many for the remission of sins. Why don't you think about this? This man lived before the giving of the Great Commission. We live after the giving of that Great Commission. Jesus didn't give the Great Commission to Matthew chapter twenty-eight verses eighteen through twenty. This. The great commission was given at the end of Matthew. It's also given at the end of Luke. It's found in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 49. This man lived and died before that commission was ever given. Now, I believe, and I think I can argue the fact, that this man was under the baptism of John. And I think that he had the responsibility to submit to that baptism. I argue that because Jesus had to do that. Matthew 3, 13 through 17, we see Jesus submitting to that baptism. Now, Jesus is in a unique category because Jesus has no sin. He has no sins that need to be washed away. John's baptism was for the remission of sins, but Jesus has no sins. So you say, why did He have to be baptized? Jesus gives us the reason. He says, to fulfill all righteousness. I've got to fulfill all righteousness. Now, Psalm 119, 172 says that all of God's commandments are righteousness. So Jesus is submitting to the baptism of John to fulfill all of the commandments of God. God commanded baptism through John. And if you're going to keep God's righteousness, that's what you have to do. Matthew 21, 23 through 27, Jesus is going to deal with their question. By whose authority are you doing these things? Jesus said, I'll answer your question, you answer mine. John's baptism, was it from heaven? Was it from men? Well, they couldn't answer because if they said it from heaven, Jesus is going to say, why didn't you do it? If they say it's from men, the people are going to get mad at them and upset with them because they all think John is a prophet. That means he's a man come from God. So they're in trouble either way. And so they, they don't answer. But have you ever thought about this? When Jesus said John's baptism from heaven to men, what if Jesus had never been baptized? What could they have said to Jesus? Oh, if it's from God, why didn't you do it? But they couldn't say that to Jesus because He had done it. They were the ones who hadn't done it. He had done it. He had submitted to it. They simply had not submitted to it. And so we, we see the difference in, in the covenant the testament under which we live. This man lived before the giving of the Great Commission. This Great Commission, the centerpiece of that Great Commission, is going to all the world and teach all nations. Baptizing them. It's the Great Commission that commands baptism. Baptism is the centerpiece of that Great Commission. Baptizing them and then teaching them. Well, this man lived before that. This man lived before the church. was. church is not established until Acts chapter 2. It's not until Acts chapter 2 that Peter is going to use the keys to open up the doors to the kingdom. Peter's going to say, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. But this man lived before Acts chapter 2. He lived before the church was established. He lived before God added the saved to the church, Acts 2.41. Those that were added had been baptized, Acts 2.41. This man lived before that. Have you ever thought about this? When Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and Peter is is answering their question, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Why didn't one of them say to Peter, Peter, what about the thief on the cross? Peter, you forgot about about that thief on the cross. They didn't say that. It's not recorded, at least, in Acts chapter 2. Some of them were at the cross. Peter says, they with wicked hands had crucified the Son of God. Some of them were there. Some of them had cried out, crucify Him, crucify Him. That's why they want to get rid of His blood from their hands. Why didn't they say if they were there and they were witness to this conversation between Jesus and this thief, why didn't they say, what about the thief on the cross? But they didn't. In fact, nobody in the book of Acts ever brings up the thief on the cross. We read about baptism, 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 baptism over and over again. And not a one of those in the book of Acts ever says, what about the thief on the cross? Now they were closer to the cross than we were, than we are. They they were witnesses to it, many of them, but none of them made that argument. So if they didn't make that argument and they were way over there and we're way over here and they're much closer to the cross than we are, then why are we making that argument? Well, I think we're making that argument because the only other conclusion that we can come to is that we have to be baptized. And if we don't want to do that, then we're looking for a way not to do that. And so we run to this thief to try to get out of doing that. But I want you to think further with me about this. If you're looking to that thief for your salvation, let me suggest to you very kindly, you're looking at the wrong cross. You're looking at the wrong cross. You need to shift your focus over one cross. You need to get to that center cross. You're looking at that cross on the side. This man, by his own admission, was dying for his sins. He was deserving of this punishment. Now, if he was dying for his own sins, he's in no position to save you or me. He can't even save himself. The only one that can save him is the one on the center cross. That's the same one that can save you or me. This man is not saying, I'll save myself. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, Lord, save me. Lord, remember me. Lord, I need your help. He isn't saying, I'm the way, follow me. Because he knows that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man, not even him, can come to the Father except through Jesus. John 14 says, he knows that Jesus is his only hope. Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. Without Jesus, we have no hope, Ephesians 2.12. Jesus is our hope. If you're looking to that thief for your hope, you're looking at the wrong cross. You need to shift your focus over to Jesus. But you know, it's amazing to me that we spend our time trying to work out that man's salvation. That man is either saved or lost, and there's nothing I can do about it and nothing you can do about it. But there is something you can do about your salvation. There is something I can do about my salvation. We can work it out. Philippians 2.12 I can't work his out. He's already dead and gone. I can only work on mine. I can only make my calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1.10 I can't make his any more sure or unsure than it was. It is what it is. I can work on mine. You can work on yours. You know, I'm not going to stand on the day of judgment and answer for him. And he's not going to stand there and answer for me. We're going to answer for ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5 and 10 on that day of judgment. That's the way it's supposed to be. Don't look to Him. He doesn't want you to look to Him. He didn't look to Himself. He looked to Jesus. Look to Jesus for your salvation. He is the only One who can save you. He is the only One who was without sin. He was the only One who could be the sacrifice for sin. You know, if you're looking to that thief You're looking to the wrong testament. You're looking to the wrong side of the cross. You're looking for some plan other than the plan, the testament, the covenant that we're under. The New Testament teaches very clearly that we have to be baptized. You may not like that answer, but it doesn't change it. Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, Saul of Tarsus, he's on that road to Damascus. He's been on his way to go persecute Christians. This light shines about him. He hears this voice, Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? Who art you, Lord? I'm Jesus of Nazareth whom you're persecuting. Lord, what would you have me to do? Go into the city and there it will be told you what you must do. Must. That's an important word in that state. That's what he heard on the road to Damascus. Go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, if he was saved on the road to Damascus, he was saved before he was told what to do. You ever thought about that? Everybody says he saved on the road to Damascus. Well, then he was saved before he was ever told what he must do. How do you arrive at that? If he was saved on that road to Damascus, then why did Ananias have to go? I can tell you this much. Ananias didn't want to go. Ananias was scared to death to go. Lord, I have heard all about this man and what this man has done. He didn't say he wouldn't go, but he clearly doesn't want to go. But he's going to go because God wants him. To. Now, what is he going to tell him when he gets over there? Well, Acts twenty two sixteen tells us what he said. Now, why tarriest thou? Why are you tarrying, Saul? Saul was praying. He was fasting. He said, Why are you tarrying? You need to get up. You need to be baptized. You need to wash away your sins. He's still in his sins. They still need to be washed away. Now, if He was saved on the road to Damascus, if He was saved at the point of faith, what is He doing still in His sins? Why does He need to get up and be baptized to get rid of His sin? It's not to to give an outward sign of an inward grace because obviously He doesn't enjoy that grace yet. He's still in His sins. You know, that's the the theme we see throughout the book of Acts. You say the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved in your household. Was He saved at that point, at that moment? Well, think about that context. Think about verse 31, the answer that's given. Think about verse 34. He rejoiced with His household. We have faith at the front end. We have faith at the back end. There's two book bookends, faith and faith. We're saved by faith. No argument about that. But to say that we're saved by faith alone, now that's a different deal. We are saved by faith. I won't argue with you about that. I'd be in a losing argument if I tried to argue about that. We are saved by faith. But what does faith involve? What does faith include? Well, in this man's case, the jailer's case, he washed their stripes. What's that? He put the stripes there.